Well, good afternoon again. Glad you're here. Glad you're with us. I hope you're having a happy new year. It's really hard for me to believe that we've already made it to 2020. Uh, And as we have made it to 2020, I'm going to do my best to refrain from any cheesy jokes about our church's vision in 2020. You know, I'm not going to introduce a new sermon series titled Seeing 2020 and 2020 or anything along those lines. Instead, we're just going to pick right back up in our journey through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them up. Turn open to Acts chapter 9. And as you turn to Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up reading beginning in verse 32 here in a moment. But... I must say, before we kind of read this passage, is I don't really know what's in store for this year. I don't know what God has in store for us as individuals, for us as families and friends, for us as a church in this city and around the world. I don't know what God has in store for us in this upcoming year. But I do suspect that if 2020 is like every other year that we've ever experienced as we've journeyed through the world that we are a part of, I suspect that 2020 is going to contain a mixed bag of both joys and sorrows. That as we journey through this next year, we're going to experience some really good times, and we're also going to endure some very tough and difficult and challenging times. That's kind of the nature of life in any given year, that life is a journey of contrast, that life is a mixed bag of both joys and sorrows, of great highs and challenging lows. That's just the way things go in the world that is. The writer of Ecclesiastes clued us into that many years ago when he penned these words that you've probably heard before, and he reminds us that there's a time and a season or a stretch for everything under the sun, the good and the bad, the happiness and the hard times, and this is what he says. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And if that's any indication of what life is like in the world it is, we can expect for this new year to carry with it a mixed bag of both joys and sorrows. A mixed bag of times, seasons, and stretches. But what I want us to do is we kind of stand at the beginning of this year is I want us to think about one type of season or stretch or time that you most likely will experience at some point in time this coming year. It may be a season or a stretch that you are currently in right now, or maybe you're just kind of coming out of. I want to talk about these seasons and these stretches where we are confronted with the hard realities of life. When we're confronted with the hard realities of life in a fallen world, namely the hard realities of suffering and death, which is what our passage is putting before us, and of course, we're going to see some really good things come out of that in this moment, but we're going to see these dynamics of suffering and death and and explore how does the gospel equip people like you and me to engage those hard realities and to minister in the midst of those hard realities as we journey through a world marked by 
Again, suffering and death and a myriad of other difficulties. So picking up, we're going to see this, uh, I hope, beginning of verse 32. It reads, as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. And all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed there a little bit longer in Joppa with a man named Simon, a leather tanner. Now, what's interesting about this text is that you have the church as represented by the apostle Peter, who's the head of the church at this time, and and he's ministering in the midst of some hard realities. He's traveling from place to place, encouraging churches that have been planted and that were growing in light of the gospel. And as he's done so, he's come across some hurting disciples, one of whom fell, was paralyzed for about eight years. The other was sick and fell dead. And he ministered in the midst of these hard realities. And, and so what I want us to do is I want us to think about the hard realities of suffering and death and how the gospel uniquely equips and empowers us to minister in the midst of them. To live with a unique hope and a unique perspective when it comes to the hard realities of life. You know, as a church, we don't have to live with our heads in the sand when it comes to the difficulties of life in a fallen world. We've been uniquely equipped by our faith in the gospel and our being filled with the Holy Spirit to stare hard realities straight on and to engage them full on with the hope and the life of the gospel. So let's think about the hard realities first, namely the hard realities of suffering and death. A couple of observations that we can make in light of this. One is that suffering is universal. Suffering is universal. It is a universal human experience. To live is to suffer in some way, shape, or form. Luke kind of cues us into this when, we are, when he introduces us to a man named Aeneas who was suffering and a woman named Dorcas who was suffering and a community that is grieving her loss, that is grieving her death. You have this gamut where we see this, that suffering does not discriminate according to gender. That suffering befalls men and women. It falls on everyone. But not only do you kind of see it hinted at there, we can also say that suffering is universal in the sense that it does not discriminate against the reputable or the irreputable. Meaning good people suffer in a world like ours. 
We want to do away with any theology of suffering that suggests that if you are a good person, you will not suffer. All will go well with you and for you. We want to dismiss that because it is a lie. It is unbiblical. It is anti-gospel. It is not nowhere in the ballpark of reality. This is why when you hear people talk about karma and you begin to probe karma a little more closely and you begin to see how karma, according to them, plays out, there's really no such thing as justice or grace in a worldview that is marked by karma. Karma is inadequate to deal with the hard realities of life in a fallen world because suffering is universal. It does not discriminate. It hits all people everywhere at some point in time. And so you see this in the text when uh, Tabitha, otherwise known as Dorcas, is referred to as a reputable person. She was a loved person. So her Jewish name was Tabitha. That kind of reflects her Jewish roots. The name Dorcas, that was the Hellenistic translation of her name. Now, we get a lot of names from the Bible. My son Asher was named Asher, because that's a word, a name drawn from the Old Testament. It's Hebrew for blessing and happiness, and so we gave that name to him. Dorcas isn't one of those names. So you're going to hear Peter, you're going to hear Paul, you're going to hear Mary, you're going to hear Elizabeth, but you're not going to hear a lot of Dorcases. It just doesn't fall. But the name is actually quite beautiful. Tabitha Dorcas literally means gazelle. And the gazelle was metaphorically used in the Old Testament to speak of a beloved person. This is why in the Song of Solomon, the object of the lover's affection is often described as being a gazelle. It refers to a loved person, someone who is the object of one's affections. And so her name speaks to the way people saw her. And it likely speaks to the way God saw her as a beloved person. But yet she's the one who gets sick. And she's the one who dies. Because suffering is universal. It hits all people everywhere, regardless of your gender. We're going to see further, regardless of your race. And we're going to see, regardless of your reputation, whether you are considered a good person or a bad person, your morality does not exclude you from the hard realities of life. There's a man by the name of Tony Hoagland who wrote a provocative article titled, The Cure of Racism is Cancer. And it's a very provocative article where he's getting after this dynamic that suffering is what we all share in common. And he points this out with his experience as one who's undergoing treatment, for cancer. He says, the first time you park your car in the vast cold cavern of the underground garage and step into the hospital elevator, you may feel alien and forsaken. Perhaps you'll feel that you have been singled out unfairly, plucked from your healthy life, and cast into this cruel ordeal of cancer. Walking through the lobby with a manila envelope of x-rays under your arm and a, folded, and a folder of lab reports and notes from your previous doctor, You'll sense the deep tremor of your animal fear, a barely audible uneasiness trickling up from somewhere inside you. But there is good news, too. As you pass one hallway after another looking for Elevator B, you'll see that this place is full of people. Riding the escalators, reading books and magazines, checking their phones near the coffee pots. And it will dawn on you that most of these people have cancer. In fact, it seems as if the whole world has cancer. With relief and dismay, you'll realize I'm not special. Everybody here has cancer. The withered old Jewish lefty newspaper editor, 
the Latino landscape contractor with the stone roughened hands, the tough lesbian with the bleach blonde crew cut and the black leather jacket, and you will be cushioned and bolstered by the sheer number and variety of your fellows. The strange country of cancer, it turns out, is the true democracy. And you might broaden that and say this, the strange country of suffering is the true democracy. It's what we all share in common. Suffering and inevitable death is universal. But in addition to being universal, we have to think well about this dynamic. Suffering is consequential. Suffering is consequential, meaning it is the consequence of sin in general in the world. When God created all things in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he declared it all good. Suffering and death was not a part of the blueprint in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis 2. God warned Adam and Eve that if they sinned against him, if they rebelled against him, if they showed a lack of faith in him, that that stuff would come. And so he provided the warning. The warning wasn't followed. Adam and Eve sinned. And after that, everything, everything was subjected to, to entropy, to decay, to suffering, and ultimately death. The Bible will tell us that it is the wages of sin, that is, the consequences of sin ultimately are or is death. So we want to say that sin is consequential. It is the consequence of suffering is consequential the consequence of sin in general. But here's, here's what we need to think well as Christians. We don't want to think poorly about this dynamic because there's a tendency, and there used to be back in antiquity, a tendency to measure out every ounce of suffering that there was an equal ounce of sin on the other side of the scale. This was a worldview that was quite common in antiquity. It was one that the book of Job was actually written to confront. If you're familiar with the book of Job, it tells the story of a man who suffered a lot. But the book of Job is dealing with this man's relationship with God in the midst of the hard reality of his suffering and how he's interacting with the Lord, how the Lord is interacting with him. And it's just it's an intense book of that all-too-familiar dynamic. But one of the unique things about the book of Job is that Job goes through great lengths to point out that this man's suffering wasn't due to a specific sin in his life. That he wasn't experiencing any type of retribution from the Lord in the suffering he was enduring and experiencing. In fact, the book goes through great lengths to tell readers like us that Job was a righteous man. That he was a man who was upright, meaning he had integrity. That he was a man who feared the Lord. He worshipped God exclusively. He was blameless. That word is used to describe Job in multiple places in that book. And it's clear that, that there isn't an equal ounce of suffering that falls on one side of the scale to balance out an equal ounce of sin in Job's life. That's not what was going on in his story. And that's not the message we want to communicate to a hurting world. And it's not the message we want to communicate to ourselves when we are suffering. Because then we start drawing false conclusions. I'm suffering because God is mad at me. I'm suffering because God doesn't like me. I'm suffering because God hates me. I'm suffering because of this, that, or the other. But then that same tendency shows up in the gospel. In John chapter 9, Peter and the other disciples were walking with Jesus. And they come across this man who was blind from birth. 
And so the disciples come up to Jesus, and they want to know who's at fault. And so they ask Jesus, why is this man, why has he been blind from birth? Was it because he sinned in a particular way? Or maybe his mom and his dad did something. Who sinned? Who's at fault to account for this man's suffering? And Jesus looks at the disciples and he shatters the religious assumptions that they carried into the conversation. And he says, look, guys, you have to understand in John chapter 9, verse 2, that neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. So Jesus does two things there. You have a man who's been blind from birth. And the question is designed to get Jesus to explain everything that has led up to his blindness. What caused this man to be like this in this moment? But Jesus doesn't entertain that conversation. He doesn't focus on specific particular causes that place blame on him or his mom or his dad. Instead, Jesus focuses on what can come out of it. And the reason Jesus focuses on what can come out of it, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's reminding us that he is a God of redemption. He is reminding us that he's a God who deals with the world as it is. And you can sit in your rooms and speculate and try to explain the problem of evil and suffering in the world all that you want. And you can try to use that as a as a smokescreen to deny your belief in God's existence and all these things, and you're wasting your time because that's not where Jesus went, and that's not the conversation Jesus wants to have with you. The conversation Jesus wants to have with his people in the midst of hard realities isn't causal specifics. It is what's going to come from it. How is this suffering going to display the works of God? How is this suffering going to reveal the redemption of God? How is this suffering going to bring about humility and holiness in a person's life? That's the conversation that Jesus wants to have with you. So don't waste your time in religious speculation and philosophical discourse. Engage in the reality of life in the real world, trusting a God of redeeming grace. That's where Jesus goes in this conversation. So when it comes to hard realities, what we do is we say yes Suffering comes to everyone. It is universal. And yes, suffering is consequential. It is, it is the consequence of sin in general in the world. But here's one qualification. There's one qualification to this. Suffering is a consequence of sin in general. The fact that we live in a fallen, broken world. But there is. We don't want to run to that and hide in that. Not recognizing that it is possible And it can be true that specific sins have led to specific forms of suffering. That it can be a consequence of that. Ask any abuse victim. The abuse victim knows exactly what sin has led to their suffering. The abuse victim knows exactly who's responsible for causing that turmoil in their life. Sin, specific sins, can cause specific forms of suffering in our lives. This is why we want to resist it. This is why we want to fight against sin. This is why we want to pursue holiness because sin harms people. It harms the person sinning and it harms those who are being sinned against. The use of reckless words can cause suffering in the life of another. An unfaithful spouse can cause suffering in the life of their spouse. And an unfaithful spouse may even start wanting to repent and come back to it. But 
it seems that they're now wounded by their own shame and guilt and fear and, and the turmoil in the relationship. And, and they can say, yeah, well, my suffering in this moment was caused by my infidelity or my lack of trustworthiness in my marriage or whatever the case may be. So we say that sin is, uh, that suffering is consequential, generally speaking, so that we don't start looking for an explanation for every suffering because we might be looking like Job's friends and not be able to find the right one. But there are specific forms of suffering that you can examine and say, yeah, this is tied to sin that I've done or sin that's been done against me. And this is why, church, we want to take sin seriously. Sin hurts. Sin causes suffering. So we want to resist it in our relationships. We want to resist it in our marriages. We want to resist it in our friendships. We want to resist it in our parenting. We want to resist sin because sin does. Specific forms of sin can lead to specific types of suffering as a consequence in the world that is. And so suffering is universal. Suffering is consequential. But what you also see in these two stories that are coupled together is that suffering is multifaceted. It's multifaceted in that suffering hits us in various ways to varying degrees. There's all kinds of suffering that people can experience in a world like ours. This passage puts four different types of suffering before us, one of which is paralysis. So you have one man who's suffering because he's paralyzed and has been bedridden for eight years. Now, the fact that he's a man who's been bedridden for eight years means that not only is he suffering the fact that he's paralyzed, he's suffering the memories of what it used to be like when he could walk. He's suffering the memory of what it was like when he could provide for his family and he could tend to other people's needs. Whereas now, as a bedridden adult, for the last eight years, he's needed to be served. He's needed to be waited on. He's needed to be looked out for. There's no independence. There's no autonomy. His suffering is compounded by the memories of being able to walk one time earlier in his life. So you have paralysis in the memory of what once was. But then you also have sickness. You have Tabitha or Dorcas who became physically ill. She was sick and this is a type of suffering that you've probably experienced over the past few months as various types of sicknesses have circulated through homes and our city. If you have kids who are in school, you've already been there over the past two months because your kids go to school and they grab whatever's there and they bring it home and then they just kind of play with it for a few months They don't want to get rid of it. They just ping pong it back and forth between themselves and they're just constantly sick and you're constantly interacting with sickness and it's not pleasant. It carries with it various types of its own form of suffering. My niece, Peyton, she's seven years old and she lives with Down syndrome, but about three days ago she contracted pneumonia and pneumonia has a very hard impact on someone living with Down syndrome and and so she was hospitalized. She's been in the hospital for the past three days. She's been on oxygen tanks and wired up to different machines. And her mom is there. Her aunts are there. Her grandma's there. And they're all tending to her. So not only is Peyton suffering this illness, those who love Peyton are suffering in response to this illness, worried about what's going to happen. Is she going to make it through this, that, and the other? Now, it seems she's going to be released today, but your prayers for little Peyton are, are appreciated. And so you have sickness that introduces various, various types of suffering as well. And, but then in the story, of course, you have death. Because Tabitha's sickness did lead to her death. She died. We're told that, a, that she became sick and 
died. Now death is one of the most, it seems, death is one of the most arbitrary forces in this world. Death hits people in surprising, unexpected ways. Death sometimes befalls people that we would have never expected or guessed or ever thought that anything like that could happen to them. And the reason for that is because death seems, from our perspective, to be quite arbitrary and it seems to be uncontrollable. In fact, from our perspective, death cannot be controlled. We can exercise, we can eat right, but I know people who have exercised and have eaten right all their lives only to come down with a sickness that has led to their surprising death. Death seems arbitrary. Death is certainly outside of our control, and this is frustrating for people like us. People who want to control everything, When we're confronted with the hard reality of death in the world, we discover that we can't. We can't control the most devastating form of suffering that exists in the world. A guy by the name of Metallica's drummer, Lars Ulrich, said, The last thing that I've been unable to control in my quest to control everything is death. And this rocked him, and that thought should unsettle us as well. We are mortal people. But there's more suffering in this text because suffering is multifaceted. You had paralysis, you have sickness, you have death. But then notice how everyone who loved Tabitha are responding. They themselves are suffering the loss of a loved one. They themselves are grieving the death of one that, they, that was beloved in their community. This is why when Peter shows up to the home, the widows run to Peter and they're showing him the garments that Dorcas knitted together and the clothes that she had sewn together and they're grieving this one that they loved and they're they're holding out all the contributions that Dorcas made to their community as a way of saying we we are at a loss now. There is a void in our community because we've lost someone we've loved. And so this passage puts before us some incredibly hard realities, hard realities that all of us will face in varying degrees and in various ways And we could step back and we could actually make the list a lot longer. I'll let you do that as you think about the ways in which you have suffered or seen other people suffer. But but suffice it to say at this point, the hard reality of suffering is that suffering is universal. It hits everyone. Is that suffering is consequential. It is the result of sin and brokenness in the world in which we live. And sin is multifaceted. And once we kind of square up with that, we can then confront that As gospel people. See, gospel people do not live with their head in the sands, ignoring what is wrong with the world around us. Gospel people look up, look out, and we deal with the world that is as it is. And if hard realities are true, which they are, then gospel realities are true, which they are. And those are the ones that we take into those moments. Those are the ones that compel us into ministry. So think about what Peter does in this story. He's confronted with these hard realities And he brings in some hopeful remedies. And I want us to think about how Peter sets an example for you and I as we minister in the midst of hard realities. He did a couple of things, and these are a couple of things that we need to embrace as we do the same things in our city and in the world in which we live. First, Peter engaged in a ministry of presence and participation. One of the ways in which you and I are to minister in the midst of these hard realities is to be present And to be a participant, to be a willing supporter of those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who are having a hard time. Let's think first about the presence. 
Peter is walking from town to town, encouraging Christians in different churches, and he comes across a man, and he stops. He slows down. The passage begins with him moving kind of quickly from one place to another, but once he comes across this hurting disciple, he stops, and he is present with this man, and he ministers to him in that moment. He's recruited by some disciples to go to the other town where Tabitha is, and Peter did not consider himself to be too busy to go and care for this hurting community, to care for this community that's been rocked by sickness and death. So instead, he checked his schedule, or he he sacrificed his schedule, whatever routine he was on, and he went with these disciples to minister to these people in need. He had a ministry of presence. And one of the best ways in which you and I can engage hard realities when we face them as a family of faith or we face them in the lives and relationships we have outside of the church is to be present people. It's to be people who are willing to slow down and to help those who are hurting, slow down and help those who are having a hard time. Now, there is an example back in the book of Job. This is one of the best things. If you've ever read the book of Job, Job had some friends that tried to minister to him when he was suffering. And the best thing his friends did was in the first seven days of that experience. Because we're told in the book of Job that his friends came to him and they were silent for seven days. They were present, but they were not speaking. They were just there. That's an incredible way to minister to someone who's been rocked by hard realities. Not just to step into the moment and start preaching or declaring, but step into the moment and be present with them. And so that's what Job's friends did, and that was the only good thing they do in the whole story because Job's friends started talking after about seven days, and they spouted nonsense. They didn't serve Job well with their words. They should have sat in silence longer so that they could have come up with a better theology of suffering to bring into that situation. But they weren't able to do that, and I would encourage you not to do that. That when you are ministering to people in the midst of hard realities, embrace the ministry of presence. Be with people for as long as necessary. And when the time comes for you to speak, make sure what you speak is saturated with the grace of the gospel. Make sure you're not speaking words of blame or accusation or correction. Make sure you are speaking words that are saturated with the fact that Jesus is alive And there is hope for us now. This is essentially what Peter does when he says that Jesus Christ heals you, speaking to the paralyzed man. This is what Peter is doing when he kneels beside this woman's deathbed and he begins to pray, only to later say, Tabitha, get up. He's present, but he's not just present. He's also participating. He provides direction. He provides good counsel and support. For example... When the paralyzed man stands up, the first thing Peter says to him, he says, now go make your bed. And you might think, well, that sounds totally lame. Why would Peter tell him to go do chores after he's experienced this incredible healing? Well, if you were someone who hasn't walked in eight years and haven't been able to make your bed, this is incredible counsel. This is incredible empowerment. This is so much dignity when Peter says, look, make your bed. You've been stuck there for eight years. Jesus has healed you. Let's let's empower you to get back to life as it used to be lived. Let's get back to regular rhythms. Let's get back to healthy patterns. So so make your bed. And so he he supports this man by empowering him and and helping him become somewhat self-sufficient in that moment. Same thing happened with Tabitha. He took her hand and he helped her out of the bed after she 
opened her eyes and saw him and was restored to life. And then he led her to the widows and he presented her to them to encourage them and they could encourage one another. He's, he's present and he's participating. He's supporting the healing process that is happening in this moment. And when you and I are ministering in the midst of hard realities, we want to be present with those who are hurting or suffering and we want to be participants. We want to be good God-honoring supporters of those who are coming out of hard times or who are walking through hard times. We want to employ wisdom. We want to employ grace. We want to be present and participant in that moment. But here's the challenge. Peter risked a lot when he reached out his hand and he touched this dead woman. Peter comes from a Jewish background that prohibited him from coming in contact with a corpse like that. And so if Peter was still operating out of his religious assumptions, and if he wasn't being transformed by the gospel, he would have never done that. But because he's now being transformed by the gospel, and he understands that that can't make him unclean before God, in fact, that is probably the cleanest thing he could do in that moment, was to reach out his hand and to touch this dead woman. That's what Peter did. You have this incredible moment where Peter risks much to participate and to provide support to those who are hurting in this passage. Same thing could be said about her sickness, that he shows up and the sickness is in the house. Who knows what that was? Who knows how contagious that could have been? Who knows if that could have led to Peter's death? But then this is something we see as we relate to people who are hurting, as we move into these moments and we get involved and we recognize that presence and participation will oftentimes require risk. It will oftentimes require sacrifice, where we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our safety, we sacrifice our comfort, we sacrifice our religious assumptions, we sacrifice all those things to care for those who are being fraught with hard realities. And the reason we do that is because we're being shaped by the gospel. Peter is doing this because this is what he saw Jesus do when he walked with him through Galilee. He saw Jesus reach out his hand and touch the sick. He saw Jesus interact with those who were suffering in personal, intimate, close ways. So Peter says, look, I'm now representing Jesus. I'm going to do the same thing. And then you and I can say here today, we represent Jesus. We're going to do the same thing. It was a surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Brand. He died back in 2003. He actually died here in Seattle. But he had a long, long 60-plus year career ministering to lepers in India. He was raised by Christian parents as, as a missionary kid, and, and the heart, his heart for the gospel began to blossom. And, and so he gave his life wanting to care for people who were discarded and cast aside in that particular country and context. And he led some innovative techniques to help care for lepers in the world, and he's just a legend in that field. And he was asked one time why he would give his life to serving lepers, knowing the risks that were involved. Why would he touch them? Why would he interact with them? And this is what he said in response. He said, well, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind. He touched the skin of the person with leprosy and legs of the cripple. I sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, and smelly. With his power, he easily could have waved a magic wand. In fact, a wand would have reached more people than a touch. He could have divided the crowd into affinity groups and organized his miracles. Paralyzed people over there, feverish people here, people with leprosy there, raising his hands to heal each group efficiently in mass, but he chose not to. 
He said Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people. He wanted those people one by one to feel his love and warmth and his, get this, full identification with them. Jesus knew he, would, he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching. Peter was present. Peter participated in the suffering of others by working to support and pray and be involved in what was happening. You and I are to be present. You and I are to participate in the suffering of others, to get involved closely and intimately with those who are hurting. You know, sometimes churches get criticized for not doing enough for those who are hurting, but I wonder if that's true. I wonder if churches might be operating more in this quiet, intimate, personal way, more so than the the flashy way of advertising and marketing and messaging that can get all that stuff out there. I wonder what's more true of what Jesus was like, and I wonder what might be best for us as a faith family. Here you have Peter present and participating and ministering to those who are faced with hard realities. But then the second dynamic he did, not only do you find a ministry of presence and participation, there's a ministry of prayer and perspective. As gospel people, we engage hard realities with a ministry of prayer and, particip- and perspective. Verse 40 It says that Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down beside Tabitha, and what does he do? He didn't just go in and declare her, get up. He walks in, he kneels down, and he prays because that's a big moment, right? He better not say that or whatever the case may be. He better be right, right? And so he takes some time to commune with the Lord and to pray for this woman. And something happened in the exchange of the prayer so that when he opened his eyes, he spoke to Tabitha, and he said, Tabitha, get up. And he began to pray. And, and what we find in this moment is what's called a miracle. This was a miracle, this woman's life being restored. What happened earlier with this man being paralyzed, now walking around and making his bed, that is a miracle. So the question becomes, okay, does the church only operate in miracles when it comes to helping hurting people? And ministering in the midst of hard realities, do we only live in the world of miracles that seem to happen in few and far between experiences? Well, this is where we begin to think about, okay, we want to be informed by the entire scriptures. We want to engage in a ministry of prayer and perspective. And we recognize as gospel people that prayer shapes perspective, that the gospel shapes how we see all of reality in a holistic fashion. And when you look at the church in the New Testament, there are moments of miraculous intervention when Jesus brings healing through his people like what you're reading about now. But there are also instances where people pray and nothing changes. The Apostle Paul would be exhibit A. The Apostle Paul in his story was inflicted by a thorn in his flesh, some type of physical ailment, and he wanted it removed. So much so that he prayed three times, God, would you take this thorn from me? I don't want it anymore. And each time, God denied his request. But each time, God responded with the word, my grace is sufficient for you. I want you to know that my power is perfected in your weaknesses. Same thing happened to Timothy. Timothy was a man who had some kind of stomach ailment. He was probably prayed for by Paul and his friends. But it turns out, His healing didn't come, which is why Paul would say, I want you to take a little wine for your stomach. 
There's a medicinal effect in that, and you need some medicine. So when it comes to helping hurting people, we don't just operate in the arena of what's considered miraculous. We employ medicine, and we engage these dynamics with what's called hopeful realism. The hopeful realism of the gospel, which means a couple of things. It means on one hand, we prayerfully pursue God's miraculous activity. We do pray for Jesus to heal people. We do ask God to miraculously intervene in impossible situations. This is what we are told to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. We are told to pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Then when you read through the chapter, you see a whole list of spiritual gifts. Healings and miracles are included. And the pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, that is a command in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. So what do we do? We prayerfully pursue God's healing of those who are hurting. We prayerfully pursue God's miraculous intervention in situations and circumstances where hard realities are swelling up. So we do pray as part of our hopeful dynamics. But we are hopeful realists. We recognize by maintaining gospel perspective that Jesus' healing doesn't always come in the moment the prayer is made. Jesus promises to heal his people. He promises to resurrect the dead. Sometimes that has happened in a moment in human history, i.e. Dorcas's life or Lazarus's life. But when all is said and done, do you realize that's going to happen for everyone? That our prayers for miracles and healing, they will be answered? They may not be answered in the moment when they are offered, but they will be answered at some point along history's timeline. Because there is coming a point where the Jesus who heals in this story returns, ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. And when he does, Revelation 21 tells us that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And sickness will be no more. Death will be no more. All will be restored. All will be made right. So we are hopeful realists who recognize, yes, sometimes Jesus intervenes and he does the miraculous in the now, but we trust that he will always do the miraculous when things are said and done. But what's a miracle exactly? Sometimes when we talk about miracles, we say, okay, if God performs a miracle, that means he's going to suspend the natural order of things. A dead person is dead, they should stay dead. That's what nature says, right? In this moment, Jesus works through Peter to bring her back to life. And sometimes we think, okay, he had to suspend the natural order to make that happen. But what if we're thinking about miracles wrongly, if that's what we think about a miracle? What if a miracle isn't the suspension of natural order? What if a miracle is the restoration of the natural order? What if a miracle is Jesus normalizing what should be normalized? Health, life. What if a miracle isn't suspending the natural order, but it's restoring the natural order? And if if that's the case, every time you see a miracle in the New Testament, every time you hear about a miracle in this world that Jesus might work through his people, every time that happens, you've got to understand that not as the goal in and of itself, but as a sign pointing to the great goal. In other words, miracles like these and miracles we may experience in our lives in this world, they serve kind of like appetizers 
You go to a restaurant, you sit down, you order an appetizer, you taste the appetizer. It's really good, and it gives you a hint of a feast that's going to soon come to the table. Well, when Jesus works a miracle like this in real time, that's what he's providing us with. He's giving us appetizers. Appetizers that whet our appetites for the feast that he's going to usher in one day. So when you hear miracles and you see miracles, don't see those miracles as ends in and of themselves. View them in every instance as signs and appetizers pointing to something far greater. This is what happens in the story. Jesus doesn't just heal this paralyzed man for the paralyzed man's sake. He doesn't just raise Tabitha for Tabitha's sake. Both of those miracles were pointing to something. Both of those miracles were designed to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is to be trusted and loved and believed in. This is why the response given in both stories at the end is that many people were coming to believe in the Lord. That was the goal. This appetizer had been tasted. Now everybody's coming to trust in the Lord. They're believing in the Messiah. They're being swept up in the kingdom, and they're now living in light of what will happen one day. The reality that Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make that normal. He's going to remove all sin, all sickness, all suffering, all death. He's going to abolish it all. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the perspective we bring to the world around us. It is this perspective that enables you and me to suffer differently. It's this perspective that, convince, that prevents us from losing faith when we are met with hard realities. It's this perspective that enables us to continue to love and to serve those around us who are hurting themselves. Not because we're throwing out phantom promises, but because we're bringing hopeful realism into the situation. And hopeful realism has a way of healing the heart and sustaining faith for the long haul. So the perspective being called for here isn't a, isn't a short-sighted perspective. It is a It is a perspective that embraces the long game, that sees the big picture and lives and loves and serves and prays and participates in his present in light of that. So when we are confronted with hard realities, these are the dynamics that are fueling us. This is the ministry of the church in the world that is as we anticipate the world that is to come. Now, understand that the ministry of the church is is in this moment but an extension of the ministry of Christ, Jesus is working through Peter to care for these hurting people. Jesus is working through us to care for hurting people. And this ministry was embodied perfectly by Jesus. You understand that Jesus responded to the suffering and the death in the world, not by standing back, but by stepping in. And Jesus became present in the midst of our sufferings by by coming into the world and being born of the Virgin Mary and living the life that he lived. But not only was he present in the midst of suffering and death, he participated in suffering and death. He bore the burden of sin upon him, and he bore the burden of suffering and sickness and death upon him when he went to the cross. So we know that we're worshiping a Jesus who isn't ignorant of our suffering. He is not oblivious to what death is like. He knows it all perfectly, and he can minister to us in the midst of it dynamically. So he was present. He was a participant. We know right now that Jesus, after he resurrected from the grave and he returned to his father's right hand, we're told that right now he's interceding. He's praying for people like you and me. What is he praying? Well, I think he's praying for us the same prayer that he prayed for Peter in the Gospel of Luke. 
There was a time when Peter was denying Jesus, but before he denied Jesus, Jesus told him, look, I want you to know that I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. What is Jesus praying for you right now? What is he praying for me? He's praying that our faith doesn't fail. He's praying that hard realities don't choke faith out of us. He's praying that we don't pull up from the finish line too early. He's praying that our faith doesn't fail so that we don't stop living a life of faith when confronted with hard realities. But we press into faith as we experience the hard realities of suffering and death. So Jesus was present. Jesus participated. Jesus prayed. And of course, Jesus' perspective was given to his disciples before he before he left them. In John chapter 16, he's preparing the disciples for what life is going to be like after he leaves. And listen to what he says. This was his perspective on suffering and death and hard realities. He says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy of that person, the joy of that person being born into the world. He says, so you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, meaning I'm going to come back, and, no, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. So what perspective is Jesus giving us there? He's saying, look, a woman in labor is suffering a lot, but the joy of having a child is going to eclipse the suffering and the pain that she went through to have that kid. This is why some people have more than one child. I'm told because mothers forget the pain that they went through when they meet that baby. Well, could it be that hard, the hard realities we face in this life, could it be that hard realities will only serve to make heaven all the more remarkable? Could it be that God's going to flip the script on the hard realities we experience and heaven is going to be all the more enjoyable? Our presence with Jesus, our peace with Jesus, our experience of Jesus forever and always is going to cause all the sufferings we've experienced in this life. It's going to cause all that suffering to seem to be forgotten. Could it be that hard realities will serve to make heaven all the more remarkable? That's our perspective. That's our hope. That's how we engage these dynamics. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you work these truths within us? Would you help us to grow in our hopeful realism as gospel-believing men and women? As disciples of you who are following you, I pray that you would give us grace to live in light of these truths, but also to minister to other people in light of these truths as well. Help us to grow in our ministry of presence and in our ministry of participation. Help us to grow in our ministry of prayer in our ministry of perspective. God, give us grace to be people who live heaven down and not earth up. God, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.